Welcome to the Startup Grind podcast. Startup Grind is the world's largest startup community, inspiring, educating, and connecting millions of entrepreneurs across the globe. These are the stories of disruptors, innovators, and game changers from the fastest high growth companies and venture capital firms in existence. Join us as we unpack their strategies, learn from their mistakes, and grow together. There is no time to wait, so let's begin. This episode is brought to you by Oracle for Startups. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Chris Jonu. This is the Startup Grind Global Podcast. Thanks for joining me. Today we have an incredible interview. I really enjoyed the conversation I had here with Kate Robertson, founder of One Young World, that is a community and a movement um, that is empowering young leaders, um, probably the biggest of its kind, um, particularly young activists from around the world. And these are the you know, the young people at the forefront of, of movements like the Hong Kong protests and Black Lives Matter. So really making a difference around the world. Uh, so much so that she has, you know, garnered the support of well leading activists, including Bob Goldoff, the late Kofi Annan, Emma Watson, Megan Markle, and Paul Pullman, to name a few. So um, an incredible organization uh, helping the change makers of tomorrow but um, she also just has this incredible story of her own. Um, she started One Young World while she was the uh, global president and UK group chairman of Harvest Worldwide. So massive in advertising. I wanted to understand you know, her personal journey um, from having a mother that was the first woman in South Africa to become a board member um, through to climbing the ladders in the, uh, you know, the advertising world and then on to, you know, empowering uh, these leaders of tomorrow so incredible story hope you enjoy it as much as i did cheers kate thank you for joining me startup growing global podcast i am excited to talk to you i you know i've had you know some some small amount of dealings with your organization everyone um has been lovely so far um so a big quick shout out to jemima um who just has sent amazing speaker after amazing speaker over to me so hopefully we're doing you proud um, on the pod- podcasting side of things with, you know, um, some of the guests we've been hosting for you. Terrific, terrific. That's Jemima Young at Seven Hills. Hooray. That's the one. That's the one. Um, now, uh, today is all about you, however, and I would like to go through your journey uh, and then bring it up to One Young World, obviously, and what's going on um, with you today and, and all the success with One Young World. But I have to go back. And, um, you know, usually I start with this question, um, was there a mother or father that was an entrepreneur? But because I'm privy to your bio, I've got a little bit of, uh, a little bit of insight here. But uh, I'll ask the, the question nonetheless. No. And it's, I think it's a very important question. I was born in South Africa in 1955. Both of my parents were chartered accountants. Um, my father working in a very big corporation where he worked for 43 years. My mother moved through a series, I guess, of about four jobs, the first woman in South Africa to be on a board of directors. They were older parents when I was born, but there wasn't an entrepreneurial culture in those days. So when I went to university, for example, um, and I didn't study business science, but even if you were doing a Bachelor of Commerce degree, there was nothing that suggested you would start your own business. 
So it really, truly, and it's not just South Africa, because South Africans are really, really good entrepreneurs, very positive, very inclined to say, oh, you're going to be a millionaire. You know, they, they don't do this British thing of saying, well, what will you do when you fail? They just go, whoa, it's all going to be great. But in those days, no, nothing, nobody in my family and nobody I knew for the first, oh God, I would say 28, 30 years of my life, no one was, I didn't know a single entrepreneur. And would you say like, um, you know, given your mom, I want to talk about your mom here because it's it's really interesting. Um, And so it sounds like, you know, kind of get a good job, work your way up, nice career kind of stuff. That was it. Yeah. Um, yes, those were the days. My mother decided I would go to university, not me. I don't know what I thought I was doing. I was so stupid. And my mother decided I was going, and I was mumbling around about God only knows what. And my mother said, you're going to university, and you're going to study accountancy, law, medicine. You can choose. And that was that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, my father was is Greek. And uh, so same, oh, hello. <laughs> so same kind of thing, you know. Um, I had to go to university and stuff, but um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I couldn't, couldn't have been happy with my parents. So, but mom, tremendously successful, first woman on a board, right? Is this right? In South Africa, in South Africa, yeah. So had to have been some sort of entrepreneurial um, DNA in there, Kate, surely. I don't know. I think the DNA that was there with my mother was um, tough, Tough background, tough, tough family story. Um, lived in Kenya, had my half brother and my half sister there before the war. Um, left there with two children on her own. Went to Johannesburg, had no contacts, had no qualifications, two very small children. Um, and literally from virtual starvation, which is hard to think of in those apart- pre apartheid days. But um, nearly starved and and found her way through. So, is that an entrepreneur in there? No, but it's guts, sheer yeah, guts. I would have I would have thought like the hustle. So I should say the hus- there was hustle there. Yeah, I think it's, it's self discipline. You know, courage and the will to survive, and the expectation of nothing. You know, this was not a person who thought anybody or any system owed her anything she just that was not in her ken it's not something she knew anything about and what what was the company what was the industry how did that kind of climb occur um i think she found she found her way into bookkeeping by accident she got her first job in johannesburg purely as an act of kindness from someone she spoke to on the phone felt sorry for her i don't know but um as a bookkeeper, and you know, in those days they used these enormous sort of meter-wide ledgers because no computers, imagine that life. And I remember as a child and indeed as a teenager, my mother would go through those ledgers over the weekends when she was doing bookkeeping for various companies, although by this stage she's a chartered accountant. My mother could add three or four columns of balance figures, columns with 70, 80 rows, in her head faster than you would type it into a computer and she would balance books 40 pages of accounting books to the last penny amazing and she could literally 
she never dialed a phone number, but she didn't know it. She just had a, a memory for numbers. But the, the discipline was the discipline was the thing that always struck me. And I guess once employed, you have employers that recognize that this person is is diligent to to an extent that you you just can't buy. You can't find those kinds of people. Even those days, you know, you just don't find people who work themselves to perfection all the time every day yeah and and do you think so that you kind of um looked up to this discipline looked up to mom dad i'm not you know i'm not sure like how did you I kind did. of be your work i did you know i did i mean those were simpler days for a, a, a lower middle class child they just were simpler days you know you we didn't have television in South Africa because, of course, the apartheid regime never allowed it to happen until the mid-70s. Um, there was just the only entertainment was radio and the bioscope, which is what we call the cinema. Um, simpler days. So where did you look for people to look up to? Um, your parents, probably, whether they were flawed or not. And maybe a couple of teachers and maybe an older kid along the way. There wasn't a lot else. So, yes, you did look up to your parents. I was sure as hell looked up to, up to, to mine and in the business sense to my mother who literally um, in my school years was flying very high in her career, becoming extremely well-known um, and was hugely well-regarded um, by women and men alike. And I think I suppose maybe you want to be like someone like that, I mean, that role model thing, it's the people you see when you're young. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Not very young. I mean, maybe you get someone when you're in your late teens or 20s, but those people that you see and go, I want to be like that. I was saying to someone the other day, um, someone we had at One Young World in 2013, it's a gentleman called Trevor Nube, mm -hmm. who is a Zimbabwean. And he, for some years, was the publisher and chief editor of the Mail and Guardian in South Africa, which is really the, the, the quality weekly journal. And he said to me that he lived in a, a, a kraal, a, you know, a mud hut in village in Zimbabwe as a boy. But he said that he would see as a child some little boys with no shoes, but with smart short pants and a smart white shirt and a little tie going to their school. And he said, they were my role model. I wanted to be a gentleman in a white shirt with a little tie. And today he's gone back to Zimbabwe and he's a giant influence in Zimbabwe. And I just, that little role model thing, that little spark that a young person sees, it's, it's, it's there. And I guess these days it's great for youngsters because there are lots of entrepreneurs to look up to. Oh yeah. To I love, look at. Yeah. Well, I love it. And I love the fact that, you know, you had your mom there with that because it just, things were attainable, you know, like they could be done. Right. I, I yes, yes, yeah. yes. Um, and so mom, dad, they're saying accountant, you know, kind of these um, great corporate roles, but you end up in advertising. How did this, I was such a rubbish. I went to a brilliant law school in Cape Town. I did a BA LLB with a spattering of results. Sometimes I would fail an exam and sometimes I got firsts. Um, I enjoyed studying the law. I really did. I'm annoyed with myself now because I was such a 
a lazy student. I really, I should have taken more advantage of stuff. But it law in an English-speaking university at that time in the 70s was an exciting thing to be studying wow. because the English universities were, albeit white, and we did have people of mixed race at the University of Cape Town. But law was exciting because it was in the English-speaking liberal law faculties that people were starting to be taught trade union law, labor law, those kinds of things, which have always been absolute no-no with the apartheid government. And you therefore had students who were, albeit white, politically very important, becoming very important. So at university to be admired for me was people like Fink Haysom, who my time at university, president of Students' Council, then in solitary confinement for two years, um, for trade union um, action, activity and development, um, and eventually served nine years as Nelson Mandela's lawyer, and then went on to the UN. But these people were not in the entrepreneurial channel. They were, I was looking around me at lawyers, and then I just decided, I got my LLB, didn't want to do my articles because it's lazy, and I went to work for a radio station, and then the people in advertising looked as though they had more money and were having more fun. And there I ended up, but I was a rubbish. I was an absolute rubbish as a youngster. I really was. Yeah. Absolute rubbish. Well, so you kind of ticked the box for mum and dad and then did the backflip, sounds like. My mother was not happy with me, but anyway. <laughs> she was right, but there you go. Okay, so so we you end up um, in, in radio. Is that right? Yeah. Radio. Yeah. And what, what's next? How did, how, how did, you know, how did you end up? I was up? selling. Yeah. I was selling, I was, I was selling um, and started selling space for a radio station that no one could hear. Um, I started selling space and I was there, did that for roughly a year. And I'm a great salesperson, I'm a fabulous salesperson. I remember hearing a media director was leaving an agency one day and I think I've been to the loo and went to the lift. And this media director to whom I just made a sale, I think it was for mum deodorant. <laughs> and this guy said to him, what the hell, what the hell did you do? What the hell did you do that for? You can't even hear that radio station. What did you do that for? And this guy said, I had to get her out of my office and she could sell me anything. <laughs> so, you know, I was, I was good, good at sales and, and then went to advertising agency and was useless accounts person, useless. Why my clients put up with me, I don't know. But very much a people person and very into communicating, have a party. Hi, how are you doing? Um, I don't know how J. Walter Thompson put up with me. I really don't. They sent me, I went on a great big trip. I went to Australia for them yeah. in 1984. And I went to J. Walter Thompson in Sydney. And actually, I learned a lot with them. I learned a lot with them. What was interesting to me at the time, and this relate, this comes into entrepreneurships down the road, but I found it very interesting that the advertising agencies in Australia, particularly the big ones in Sydney, like J. Walter Thompson, George Patz, all these guys, they could research the population extremely easily because you had something like 87% of Australians living by the sea and something like 70% would be income. 
Yep. So, you know, you can, you can do research against such a homogenous population in those days. Of course, it's changed a lot. But it was very different than, than apartheid South Africa, where it was, it was challenging to do proper research. And, and so the sales skills, which, are, you know, obviously a great life yeah. skill, do you think that kind of traveled through to being, uh, you know, to, you know, being able to pitch well and... and yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. And, and then was... Absolutely. And I think the things, you know, the things that are important, and I think for entrepreneurs, these things, I, you know, I, wouldn't, I don't want to call myself an entrepreneur, but I, I think the things that are important, if you look at this stack up of skills, which in my instance was happenstance, but I think you, in your influential role, you, you can codify this stuff, yeah? Yeah. You will need to be able to communicate standing on your feet. Absolutely. 90% of the time, you need to stand in a room, someone throws you a curveball, you need to be able to bat that thing out of the park. Yeah. So what I was getting as a kid at school with being very good at debating, which I think was an inherited talent, yeah. <laughs> very good at debating, and was really one of the best in the country of, the, of schools. I was, the, you know, a monster debater. And then that, you know, that feeds a little bit into the legal stuff because you learn arguments and things. Mm-hmm. Being good at selling, but also when you have to sell cold like that, you learn a lesson you will never forget. Nobody needs you and your new product. Yeah? Absolutely. It doesn't exist in the world today. And maybe it solves the need that like Facebook did that we never knew we had. Yeah. But the ability to communicate that thing, and these days, of course, everything happens online. But if you think back to the early days of websites, yeah, it became, if you had a website, gee, and if you could do a bit of e-commerce on that website, world your oyster. Well, in the early days, it was one story when you had 10 million websites. Today, in a street of billions of websites, who's going to find you? And it points always to marketing with a capital M. And I know in digital world now, we talk about this so many ways. But I think for the entrepreneur, this question, who will know about your thing? Who needs to know? How will you do that? And have you allowed time and or money to do that thing? And this, I think a lot of entrepreneurs fail at that gate. Absolutely. And just as I'm unpacking your story here, right? And I kind of see, you know, the, I guess, you know, the, um, the, the structural thinking, the debating, the, the law side of things, the selling, um, how do you pick up, like, I guess, a thirst or um, lift your skills in being creative, which is kind of like, I mean, sales, you have to be, be a bit creative, but it's completely different to like an analytical kind of thinker of, of a lawyer, say. How, how do you... So, so difficult, you know, in advertising in those days, and I think it's still the case today. I mean, I'm, I'm a long time out of the industry now, but it's an important... This, I think this is an important point. In the advertising agents industry that I was in for 30 years, God help me, 
there was very much a culture that said, you're the creatives, art directors, copywriters, da, da, da. you're a suit, yeah, which is the link between the creatives and the clients. And suits are not allowed to touch creative. Suits know nothing. Suits are assholes. <laughs> I get it. Yep. I get it. But the trouble that it did for me was because I'm such a little follower, I accepted that and accepted and always said, I'm not creative. Mm -hmm. Truth of the matter, and I learned this late in my 40s, I am incredibly creative. Yeah, absolutely. I can look at a lot of problems and I can find a creative way out of that. So I think that lots of people are creative. Lots of people. But it is something that is tamped down in us by our systems of education. Yeah. I, I believe in a lot of classical types of education. I think that we see this. I think some of the great educationists are addressing the fact that, for example, in South Korea and in China and mainland China and in Hong Kong and in Japan, those societies are aware that creativity is not encouraged, has not flourished. Yeah. This is a really, really, it's a really, really important thing. But it, as I say, it was beyond my ken and I didn't focus on it and didn't understand it. Yeah, look, I've got, you know, as you're saying this, I've got, I've got two young daughters and I just love, uh, you know, some of the creativity they get. And I'm just like, you know, I do get scared about that getting beaten out of them over the years at school, you know, and... Um, so we definitely get there because I know this is a, a, a true passion of, of yours. But um, just in following the kind of the path of the of the group, yeah. um, you must have made some. You know, you you end up being the you know the the chairman of of Havas worldwide. So there must have been like you must have had some pretty big quick succession of wins. If I'm if I'm getting it right. Of working I don't up the know, you know, I don't know over 30 years. I mean, is that quick? Oh, <laughs> These yeah. days it's not. Yeah. But but one thing, for example, when um, I was, David Jones was the CEO and when I was um, just the chairman of the UK group, which was of a, a grouped marketing services at the time in the UK under one head, it was by far the biggest. Um, we had a third of the record Benkiza business, today known as RB. Yep. And um, they had us, we were, um, have us, there was Jay Walter Thompson and McCann Erickson there. And their commercial director said, I don't want three agencies, I want two. Um, so you do a creative pitch on these two existing brands and projects. And then it's two winners take all, not three. So somebody was going out. Mm -hmm. And Jones, as my CEO, always pushed me very, very hard, which is why he was a very good CEO in that regard. And he, throughout that pitch, was saying, no, we don't want half. We want all. We want all. And I was like, David, David, shut up. All is not available. But once the pitch was run, David said to me, we've got to get a meeting. We've got to get a discussion going with them for a winner takes all. I managed to get a call for him to the then commercial director, Elio Leone Shetty, who was in Rome at the time. Mm 
Elio said you've got five weeks and I, this is confidential. Nobody must know that you are trying this, but I'm telling you now, you can waste your time. It's not how I'm playing this game. Now you have to be creative because we already had their business. So they knew us. So you can't walk in the door going, ta-da, I can do rainbows. They know you. Yeah? yeah. They know your creative strengths. They know your administrative strengths. And they know your monetary value. So you can't play with that. So it was really, that was for me, I think, as a business person, at one of my most creative periods, those few weeks in my life. Because I had to address the business model and the way that we charged them and the way they evaluated us. And I had to make it so that it was entrepreneurial, that I put skin in the game because Ricky Pink is very entrepreneurial in those days and do things that had never been done in the industry before. And when we took the whole of that business five weeks later, yeah. I mean, Martin Sorrell, everybody was absolutely blown off course. But I know that in that documentation that I was putting together at the time was, was business stuff that it was as creative as any piece of artwork you've seen. Absolutely. But, you know, necessity, mother of invention, adversity, you know, all of these things. It's amazing when you forced back to the wall and, you know, David, God bless him, having forced us into a situation you can create things that have never been done before. You can communicate a different model, a better, more exciting thing. And it was thrilling. It was absolutely thrilling. How do you get a big customer for your startup? Wouldn't that be nice? Listen to what those big customers have to say about that. Hi, it's Mike Stiles, and this is Meet the Startups for the week of July 15th, brought to you by Oracle for Startups. Yamaha, they're a global leader in motorcycles, but just like startups, they have problems too. Sales in Brazil were going down. People were walking out of dealerships on two feet instead of rolling out on two wheels. They decided they needed the right partners to get to a new vision for the customer experience. Yamaha called Oracle. Oracle called three of Brazil's leading startups. Now guess what's happening? Luis Fernando at Yamaha Motorcycles Group says getting connected to the startups through a company they trust got them where they wanted to be. And the startups, Yami, Gingo One, and Wavo, get to say that Yamaha is a customer. When startups team up with enterprise companies, everybody wins. You're looking for big-time customers, and that's fine, but maybe you also look for big-time partners. This week, Meet the Startups asked Yami CEO Rafael Bertoli, what's your best bit of advice about working with big customers like Yamaha? Big customers like Yamaha want new technologies from trusted and disruptive partners. Partnering with Oracle help open doors and give us a credibility we wouldn't have by ourselves. That's this week's Meet the Startups. If you're a startup interested in landing new customers, it might be worth your time to check out Oracle's startup program at oracle.com startup.
look, you, you touched on it on an interesting point that I want to kind of, uh, I'd like to dig a bit deeper with. Um, you said that David was hard on you, right? And I had, you know, I had a conversation with, uh, you know, um, Guy Kawasaki. And Guy Kawasaki will tell the story about Steve Jobs being a pain in the ass, but one of the hardest bosses, but the one that he learned the most from. Because it's the hardest teachers, it's the hardest bosses. Was that kind of, do you think that you had a lot of, there was a lot that was learned? What was fantastic about him at the time was when I say was hard, um, I don't mean harsh. So what David would do in those days, and it could drive you out of your mind, (laughs) he would be in New York or France or wherever he was, and you would be foolish if you imagined that he wasn't in your face all the time. So he would follow the trade press and he would say, oh, we're on this pitch and you're going, David, David, once it's in the trade press, you've already missed the boat. But that constant pushing made you go, there is never going to be a pitch that gets into the trade press that I haven't been all over first before he even gets to hear about it. What I liked about those years working for him is he would push you, challenge you hard all the time, asking you for more, which is very, that is hard. That is hard to work like that. It's very hard to work 20 hours a day, seven days a week. And I did it for years with him, years. That's really hard. But that said, what was brilliant with him? When you failed at something, or even in my case, screwed up, and I screwed up plenty, never cast the blame never took it out on you, never gave you a hard time. Gee, you know, that's a shame. Well, tomorrow, today, we're doing this and move on. And it's brilliant because it's shit to fail, but fear of failure goes out the door because you're not thinking, oh, my God, I'll lose my job. The guy's going to crap on me. He didn't do any of that stuff. And for me in that industry at the time, and certainly related to my previous 18 years in the industry, it was something I had never seen before and something I very, very much admire because it got out of me more than any other situation had done. And I was fabulously successful in that, with that treatment. I love it. I love it. And Okay, so moving moving on to um, uh, peace building and um, and youth youth led initiatives. How did how, so? If I get this right, and I'm and I'm cheating because I've got the I've got another screen here, <laughs> but <laughs> but um, at, at the height of your your career in Harvest, you wanted you you created this like um, uh, side business or whatever to kind of help give back. And and help improve leadership worldwide. If, if I got that right, I'm summarizing here. Please bail me out anytime. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think so. 2007-8, Jones was on our backs as the executive board of Have Us. That purpose was a coming thing, and that we kind of didn't have a purpose beyond profit and profit, and what were we going to do about it? And there were lots of ideas and lots of good stuff, but I had the idea for One Young World, which David really liked, and there it was, and that was, that was kind of that. 
because it was a piece of paper and it wasn't anything else. But I think, and maybe this applies with some entrepreneurs, that with some creative noodling, I put together some things that I wouldn't have described this way at the time, but in truth are passions for me. So what I had thought of was a conference for young people. Why? We were the youngest network. We had the youngest CEO in the world. So if we had a conference, it would be something young. Yeah. yeah. Because I'm an Olympic freak, I would have everybody in the whole world, every country in the world there. Wouldn't that be cool? That would be, that would be fun. What was the conference for? What's it for, Kate? No. Then you go back to your passion and I'm going, well, the country I come from, one man changed the course of history. One man. Yes, many things happened. But that light was one man. These people must exist in the world. Where are they? And as David says today, my God, if we couldn't see them at that time, we sure as hell can't see them now. So for me, there was among these young people, among young people, there must be brilliant leaders. Can we find them? Can we help them? Is anyone interested? And I'm going, it's really important because the young, this is 2008, because I'm going, people who are young now are going to die from the effects of climate change. This thing needs to change. Who's going to do it? We need these young leaders. We need them now. As David pointed out at the time, youngest billionaire in the world at the time, Zuckerberg, 28 years old. Nobody in business or anywhere else can say, well, young people don't count because actually here they come. So somehow these threads kind of going together. But in 2008 and into nine, every time I talked to particularly colleagues at Harris about it, people would go, yeah, Kate, it's a great idea. Okay, that's, let's do our work, understandably. People outside of Harris and some inside of Harris would say to me, oh, for God's sake, really, for God's sake. What a stupid thing. What a waste of time. Don't be ridiculous. And for some reason, I think, and this must happen to a lot of entrepreneurs, that's where your competitive spirit comes in because you go in, no, no. I thought I slept on it and my idea is brilliant and you told me it's shit and I'm going to go out there and I'm going to prove you got that wrong and I'm going to do this. And I don't know what that needle is, I think it's actually an important impetus. I think quite a lot of people must have that thing. There's someone saying to you, you can't do that, that's rubbish. And you go, well, maybe it is. And then you think it too and you go, still brilliant, still brilliant. Yeah, and I think that thing about keeping going through that phase, that's really hard. That's really hard. That is really, really, really hard. So, yeah, so it was one young world. I, I didn't know if it had evolved, you know, from Harvest into anything. So this has been an incredibly successful, right? You can now rewind and look back, but um, 
you've got like I'm just going to go through some of these um, some of the, the greatest activists you've had support you along the way Bob Geldof uh, Emma Watson Meghan Markle Paul Pullman who keeps coming up in at least four or five podcasts oh, yes. so far um, my boy yeah, he must be. He, I, I'm not. I'm not lying. Even just from, um, I can't even remember who I was talking to, from the other side of the world, uh, and it was like Paul Borman. I'm like, I mean, I got to. This is the fourth time I've heard about this guy. All over the world. Yeah. Um, so, how did how does it all come together, and how does it grow, and then when do you you know give everyone the finger at work <laughs> that didn't well, believe? Well, we were fortunate. We were fortunate because David was the CEO, and for the first three years, I was losing money on One Young World and have us were bankrolls. Fact. Um, and to any entrepreneur, you would have to say, um, an entrepreneur where you go, someone's going to pick up your losses. I mean, you know, that's, that's a big, big thing. Really, really big thing. I think that... Um, it's very, very tough in the beginning, but the fact that Kofi Annan, Muhammad Yunus, Desmond Tutu, Bob Geldof, because they told me in 2008 that it was a good idea, you know, you get some sort of spiritual guidance there because you're going, you may think it's not a great idea, but Kofi Annan thinks it's a good idea, so boo. It helps you in the dark, small hours of the night. It helps you. So we get through those first three years and then have us decide they don't want One Young World anymore. And in 2014, we had to pay them. I had to pay them back. It was 810,000 sterling. Um, I was still working at Havas and Havas didn't want One Young World. So that was you know, really tough because it meant I had to do One Young World in my free time David had gone and then I think you pushed and from then it got better the following year when I left to do it full time um, I think I think because it's a movement rather than it's like a classic production business the importance of living your thinking so um, one of our managing directors now, but was didn't come to us as managing director, pointed out to me in 2014 that we had to, what she called, live the brand. And that that meant that anyone we managed to hire, and we were only six people then, um, would, should had to be in our age group, had to be under 30. And we had to hire young people. And that pushes you. It pushes you because now you're living the brand. And then you realize um, if you are telling these people that they are, and you are recruiting leaders, you're not recruiting necessarily potential. You're recruiting actual leaders. They don't need people like me to tell them what to talk about. They don't need people like me to tell them what to think either. So you had to take yourself out of that. I found that very difficult. I've been leading very big companies. Um, but this is this living the brand thing. So then you find when you are talking to other people, whether it's yesterday, the Obama Foundation, um, Project Everyone, businesses, the European Commission, the Dutch government, the Colombian government, when you're talking to them, because you're, and I know that it's a much maligned word, because you're authentic, 
because you're saying, I'm not young. I don't speak for them. I don't have their voice. I exist, we exist only to find them, promote them and connect them. That is our role. Because this is authentic, smart people everywhere want to be part of that thing. Yeah. You know, I think you haven't messed with those, with that core, but I think it's quite hard to find that core. You know, it, it's people, people think that One Young World is just a conference. Yeah. Oh, the summit, you know, you come to the summit and it's so cool because there's amazing, famous people. We are not that thing. We are not that thing. It is a flagship event for us in the year and it funds our work. But the work on what we call community, which is 12,000 leaders in every single country of the world, that goes on the other 361 days of the year when we're not in that summit, blow your socks off. The community itself of these young leaders is coming through, is leading in every single country in the world. And that's the most exciting thing you've ever seen in your life. Well, let, let's, let's talk about that for a little bit because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm truly passionate about community too. I think there's a big movement towards business thinking about community. I, you know, I think people, you know, in startup land anyway, I, I push for people to think about community first um, before they're thinking about product, before, before they're thinking about service, um, thinking about who they're serving, right? And yeah, what have been some of the wins that you found by just connecting people together? And I apologize, it started to rain here. <laughs> I'm like in the garage. But... Um, um, <laughs> <laughs> I, set, I, set, I set up during COVID because I knew I'd get nothing done with the young ones inside. But I, so I can, I got a tin roof and I can hear the rain. So I'm sorry. Um, oh, hopefully it's not coming through on the recording too bad for our listeners. But um, what are some of the, what's some of the magic that's occurred by connecting everyone in terms of community? Um. I think the big things would be um, there's a, a group that work on domestic violence in the UK that have created um, legislation and policies that have been passed into law by the government. That is a group of people that support each other on domestic violence. That group now supports people working to counter domestic violence in several countries. Um, in 2000, early 2016, I worked with the chief aide to Kofi Annan at the time to find experts in countering violent extremism around the world, which is a very, very difficult topic. Um, we found a brilliant young guy, Jonathan Russell, at the Quilliam Foundation in the UK to help us. And we found around the world 12 young people working countering violent extremism in UAE, Uganda, um, Libya, Philippines, the UK, I mean, Norway, extraordinary bunch of 12 youngsters that we called the ETs because they called themselves extremely together. And this group, we took them to Geneva for their kickoff meeting with Mr. Nunn. He gave them a lot of um, mentoring and counsel over the couple of years. God knows we lost him in 2018. But that work has continued. And I was very proud of the fact that we managed to find these people 
and hand them to Kofi's people and Kofi's inspiration. Um, in Colombia, we, we had our summit there in 2017. Kofi was with us, was God bless him, the last time. Um, and he had told me that he was very keen to be there because he's very friendly with Juan Manuel Santos, who was the president at the time, who of course led the very, very complicated, courageous peace process, which is why we agreed to go to Bogota. But after the summit in Bogota, trying to carry on that work, it was fabulous because we had a fantastic public relations agency in Bogota, FTI, who did all of the work for us pro bono. We had it's left behind us in Bogota a network of 220 young leaders. I had a call from the First Lady. Now the government had changed to a very right-wing presidency, President Duque. I had a call from an aide to his wife a couple of months later, so early 18, to go and meet her in New York. And it was funny because I went to meet her at the residence and sitting there waiting to meet her. And these two young girls came into the room and I thought, you know, they're here to take notes or make the coffee. It's Colombia and they make a coffee. And one of them was the first lady and she's so young, I don't know what to say. But Maria Juliana Duque, absolutely fabulous. So what we did with her last year, we found sponsors from um, public sector, not from government, but from various bodies and private sector to fund her delegation, the Colombian delegation, part of, to our summit in London. So what was brilliant about our Latin American director, David Hereda, who led that, was that was publicized all over Colombia. And what the First Lady had suggested was that she would pick a delegate from each of the states of Colombia, of which there are, can't remember, 33 or 34, bring all of these winners to her and the president in Bogota. And she would not do their work and not tell them their work, but do exactly what One Young World does, connect them, connect them to business, connect them to one another and make them feel that their work mattered and scale their work. That network is absolutely extraordinary. And we're busy on her second cohort this year um, and another cohort where we're working with her with Scholas with, and the gentleman who leads Scholas, guess who his best friend is? He's a lovely, lovely man. His best friend is the Pope. Oh, okay, here we go. <laughs> so, you know, it just, it just, there have been so many, I mean, I could bore you to tears because they literally are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these around the world where the work has picked up and taken off. So our, one of our, our ambassadors from the Gambia, Jaha Dukure, she got female genital mutilation outlawed in the Gambia. And she was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize that year was when we were in Bogota. And her work has meant that there are activists against FGM in other countries who've been able, we've been able to connect them to Jaha so that they can, she can lead them in looking at what is 
the new law they need or the change of law or does the law exist that is not being implemented but she's been there she's done that so she can put real action and effectiveness into place in a way that nobody else can because she's done it i love this no and and like this is my favorite bit by the way i love hearing these stories um we had uh, had um, not too long ago, hosted uh, Lema Bowie. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her. Yes, of course. Yeah, and so I just love. I, I like the story. Like I was just, you know, incredibly nervous to get on the call because I had watched the the preview to the documentary. Yes, yes. Just like holy shit! Like uh, this is some crazy stuff, right? And and, and yeah, yeah, and. Um, so, but yeah, so to, to be able to empower these people must feel incredible. Um, and, and then is this, so is this, is the audience handpicked? Can I, can we invite entrepreneurs there? How does it, how does it work? Yeah, yeah. So entrepreneurs are really important for us because here's the thing. Uh, one of our MDs has, has said that strategically we've got to develop four groups, Okay. So one group is young leaders who are working in the major corporations of the world because as they come up through those corporations, they will have, frankly, the biggest power in the world. Yeah, very yeah. important group. And we are the best in the world with that group. Yeah. Then we've got a decent-sized group of people who are entrepreneurial in the social business, social uh, commitment kind of space. There's yep. a, a handsome group there, largely because of all of the work that we've done with Professor Yunus, with Muhammad Yunus. We are not where we want to be with politicians, and we are not where we want to be with entrepreneurs. Why? Because they weren't focused for us. So two years ago, we launched the first Politician of the Year Award. And... This has been a very successful move for us because if you look on the website at the judges of the politician of the year, that's serious straight. These are, these are <laughs> very serious. Um, we just launched also journalist of the year award where the bar's been set very, very high, but we also have entrepreneur of the year now. And that's a community that we don't have enough of. So we'll have these social business entrepreneurs, but frankly, we need what you guys are doing. We need the entrepreneurs. So there's an award, Entrepreneur of the Year. There's also the Lead 2030 setup, which you can apply to across a range. I think there have been 14 prizes of 50,000 American dollars each this year where you can get investment or you can get a grant. Now, most of them to date have been grants. But if a prize giver says, a corporate like Credit Suisse did last year, by preference, we'd like to do it as an investment for profit or whatever. I don't care. I'm fine with that. And the money does not come to us. The money goes directly to that person and it's cash money. It's not $10,000 cash and $40,000 of overpriced consultancy services. It's $50,000 cash. Why? Because we know that young leaders have everything except in many instances, they don't have ready access to capital. Yeah? Really? Entrepreneur thing. 
So there's that. Um, it is my hope that in the next 12 months, I will put together some serious group that will be a, a major investment fund for entrepreneurs. Nice. Now, so entrepreneurs who would want to apply to LEED 2030, mm -hmm. that's public, they can do that. But I think we've got a bigger thing and that I think will draw young entrepreneurs from all over the world to us. We have a unique point of access and it's this. If you are, for example, a young entrepreneur in the States or even in Australia, and we have a brilliant entrepreneur in Australia, you go to Silicon Valley for the big money. Mm -hmm. So our guy there, Chris Igerland, who's an Australian, who is a brilliant young entrepreneur, has just had his third round of major, major funding from Silicon Valley. So what I think is this, I don't think that the investors in Silicon Valley are getting the best entrepreneurs out of Taiwan, China maybe, but Taiwan, Indonesia, Nigeria, South Africa. Who's looking at that stuff? And genius, Geldof always says genius lives there. Yeah. So I think One Young World can provide a serious entrepreneurial funnel for the whole world. And I think we can do that, but we need, I'm speaking to some of the best people in the world for putting that stuff, putting that stuff together. I'm going to do that thing. I'm going to do that thing this year. Yeah. Well, I'd love to help with that. Yeah. You, and you can, you can. I will have more to tell you over the next two months for sure. Yeah, we, so uh, one of the businesses I work with um, came straight to mind. It's called uh, Draper Startup House. Um, so, you know, Tim Draper, the big billionaire entrepreneur who was early in Tesla and stuff. He has a the Draper Venture Network. They have 30 or so funds. Yeah. And I work particularly with a group that was a... It's, um, that they're called Draper Startup House, I'm giving them a big plug today, um, uh, that does hotels for entrepreneurs. Yeah. So very cool, like kind of first of its kind, um, started in Singapore, very interesting period at the moment, as you can imagine. But uh, they're in Yangon, they're in Lisbon, Estonia, uh, Bangalore, and very much same thing. They just started a... Um, um, a venture service to so that an entrepreneur that walks into a, a, a one of our locations in Yangon or you know Bali or wherever else you know we've got a bunch of these places then can get access to this global pool of funds so we're you know trying to even the playing field there and um, um, amplify some really I cool really I really want to talk to you more about that because in in the UK for example as Dublin um, there are a lot of incubators, yeah? Yeah. What I want to be sure, if we do this fund, I want to be sure that it's kind of working. I want to be sure that it's a situation where people are actually getting investment and equity investment and the real the real deal yeah yeah absolutely yeah well this one this one is not an incubator so they do hotels for entrepreneurs you literally go there and stay for two nights and get go to an event get food downstairs but you stay with other yeah. entrepreneurs it's really cool yeah um but the fund is just 
we connect you to someone. We have yeah. no interest in other than connecting and, and um, uh, yeah. So, but um, but yeah, I, I mean, um, I find it fascinating, but I'm not sure. We'll make sure the listeners will keep them excited. So, we'll, uh, it is fascinating. Yeah. If you're an entrepreneur, it's 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 fascinating. I think for me, it's it's you know, I'm just always always looking at things. How do we clear access for these youngsters to what they need? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and and then to your point, you know. Take you know the proximity to Silicon Valley out of the equation, right? Um, that's, yeah. So, um, but that's another. Yeah, I think I'll have to stay on the line with you after we're done with the podcast. But what's the what's the final? Um, thank you very much for your time. What is the not at the all final call to action? How can we get more young leaders, more politicians, more um, the you know people thinking about social impact uh, and the entrepreneurs coming to see you and um, and um, when, I suppose, is the next, next question given current circumstance? So um, call, to, call to action would be this, to um, follow the One Young World Social because there you'll see on all, this, all the platforms, you'll see exactly what's going on. There are an enormous opportunity, number of opportunities coming up. So anybody who wanted to attend the summit, which is in Munich in April next year, should know that part of that ticket price is the One Young World Academy, which is just in the process of being launched, will run from mid-September to mid-November with 12 modules. And the 12 modules are being led by lecturers that you literally, you literally money can't buy. Literally money can't buy. So you'll see, I'll send it to you, Chris, as soon as we announce the names, which will be in two weeks' time, You'll see, and that this year the academy is the bridge for us to the summit because of the delay. But it's only it's exclusive; it's not open source. It is only for the delegates to the summit. And as I say, you know, it's a sort of it's a sort of lecture series you and I would pay to go to. Absolutely. And one of those lecturers is Polman. Well, but here you don't get him just doing a speech. Here you get a proper a proper Harvard level lecture and 40 minute Q&A session and follow through on essay and bullet points and stuff but it literally you'll be blown away by that important question um am i too old how old are you sweetheart i am 40 in october yeah you are <laughs> you are <laughs> No, you know what? We've never limited. We've never limited. But what I always say to people is we know that once people are sort of 30 plus, they do find the community very, very young. But you can always attend as an observer. Yeah, I don't want to be the creepy, creepy dude. (laughs) (laughs) No, attending an observer is worth doing. What I see from, from people, you know, sort of 30 plus up in the various corporates, once they've been once, they change jobs, they do whatever they're doing, they pay to come back every single year. It is literally the best gathering in the world. It really is. It is the place where everything you want to do with your business, with your dreams, it's the place where this all comes together. Love it. I'm going to end there. Thank you very much for your time, Kate. Thank you for tuning in. To keep up to date with all things Startup Grind, visit us at startupgrind.com or join us at any event in a city near you. Until next time.
chase the vision and keep hustling.